Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. You'll find that in your pew Bible in front of you, I believe on page 995. We're continuing in our series in 2 Timothy. This morning we'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll give you a second to turn there. Beards, banjo, and bass. That does this Georgia boy's heart real good (laughs) before you get up to preach. But I love the word of God. It fires me up even more. So let's look together at what God has to say to us through his word. As Paul wrote to Timothy, verse 1 in chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, when I say the word success or you hear the word success, I wonder what comes to mind for you. And I suppose that depends on what we're talking about. What do you value? What are we measuring in order to determine success? Uh, Some of you are students here today. How many students do we have? High school, college, post-grad, anything? Yeah, a lot. It's great. Some of you have students at home or back at home, for better or for worse. There you are. And you've just completed another uh, year. I don't know how you determine your success. One way is grades, obviously. And so you are either already have or you're waiting for those grades to come in. In sports, uh, we've got wins and losses because winning isn't everything, it's, yeah, 9.30 failed miserably on that one. <laughs> in business, uh, you know, maybe it's your paycheck or your sales record or how many times you've been promoted. Now, I'm not advocating this morning that that's how we should measure, measure success in all of those areas, but those are certainly common metrics that we use. And when I say that word or when we talk about success, it's likely that some of us start getting a little uncomfortable. We start feeling that anxiety well up in us. We look for the exits uh, because we feel the pressure that comes with success or the hope for success or the fear of failure. Uh, We feel the pressure in school, in parenting, in our marriages, in our friendships, in your jobs, Success, the whole even concept of that is just a challenging word for us to hear. But what about here, this context this morning? What makes a successful church in your Christian life, your following Christ, what what makes that successful? And is that even a valid question to ask uh, when it comes to following Jesus? And if so, if it is, how do you know when you've succeeded? Is it just that you fail less than the day before or When the task is finished, and if so, which task, which which calling are we talking about here? You know, we've titled this sermon series in 2 Timothy that we'll be looking at this whole summer, The Essential Church, and uh, Pastor Zach Fallon did a great job last week of setting up the context and reminding us that Paul is writing uh, to Timothy from his jail cell in Rome, 
By many accounts, that would have been considered less than successful. Uh, But likely, Paul's final writing uh, before he dies is what we have here before us today. And he's saying to Timothy, here's the keys. Uh, I'm out of here pretty soon. I, I hope it goes well. It's all yours. I wonder if Timothy was tempted to feel any pressure to succeed in ministry as he was in succession of Paul. I mean, how would you like to try to fill those shoes? Well, Paul isn't setting Timothy up for failure this morning and in this letter because Paul isn't exhorting Timothy simply to succeed. What we'll see and what I want to argue for this morning is that the success of Jesus's church, note it's not my church or your church or Timothy's church or even Paul's church, it's Jesus's church, the success of the Savior's church doesn't depend on Timothy. What Paul is doing in this passage and really in the whole of of 2 Timothy is lifting up, exalting Jesus who has already been successful on the cross. The tomb is still empty on behalf of Timothy and therefore us so that the church, Timothy, can focus on being faithful in the essentials rather than stressed out about being successful. The essentials being his holy calling to endure in making disciples in the local church. Second Timothy is full of the essentials. Suffering, endurance, the centrality of the gospel, sound doctrine, personal holiness. Paul doesn't set up that standard uh, through the metrics of attendance numbers, the size of Timothy's church budget there in Ephesus the music style, the facility design, the ministries that we have, small groups, children's ministry. How well are those things going? Now, all of those are good things, but are they essential? I could even argue that attendance is good. It's good to measure those things because what are we talking about when we're talking about numbers and attendance? Well, we're talking about you, people. And what is the church's goal? To reach people. So we need to measure those things, but Are those things essential to define success? Well, this is a message that we need to hear this morning. It's a message that I need to hear this morning because we're tempted to take what we value, what we prefer, even what we're just naturally good at and equipped for, and we insert those things, even those good things, into the essentials category. And then over time, what happens is our preferences become the measure for success. We give them a a position in our lives, in our church, that scripture does not give them. Then those measurements, uh, they they can quite frankly become a, a, uh, a pedestal for pride. Or they become a burden that we cannot continue to bear or live up under. So what is essential to the success, to the faithfulness of Jesus' church? Well, It's the same thing that's caused the church to flourish for 2,000 years. It's what took that message of the gospel of which Paul is writing from a jail cell in Rome to a pulpit in Wheaton to a translation team in Papua New Guinea and is reproduced over and over over the centuries. It's not that ministries, pastors, people have come up with the best programs, 
the most innovative strategies, even though those are good things. But what we'll see this morning is that Jesus' church succeeds in being Jesus' church when we as individuals and collectively, the body of Christ, are faithful in the essentials to the mission. So what are these essentials in our passage this morning? We'll see three things. First, we have the essential fuel. The essential fuel, and that is to be strengthened by the gospel. Second, we have the essential task. The essential task, and that is to pass on the gospel. And third, we have an essential goal, to endure for the gospel. So fuel, task, and goal. First, let's look at the essential fuel. Paul says in verse 1, you then, meaning Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Hey, that sounds great, but what does that mean? Well, first, we need to notice that there are several commands in this passage, and this is the first one, this command to be strengthened, is written in the passive. And because it's an action of God applied to humans, in this case, Timothy, we call this a lot of times a divine passive, something that God does. And here what Paul is after uh, is Timothy's constant uh, dependence on God for strength. It's sometimes translated as become strong or keep on being strengthened. It's something certainly that Timothy pursues, but more so it's something that, that happens in him and to him and then through him. And Timothy's a lot like us. He's not a puppet on a string. The Christian life does involve our obedient response, right? But the granting of and being strengthened by and the indwelling and the empowering comes from God through Christ and the Spirit. So instead of the Christian life being a burden that we're supposed to just try harder, it's a joy to be celebrated. And this is something that Paul's been building on already, even in chapter 1. Look back in chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, he talks about saying, For God gave us a spirit. Who gave? God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In verse 8, he says, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9, Who saved us? Who saved us? God did. He has done this by his own purpose through the methods that he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Look down in verse 12. Is Paul able? No. Who is able? Jesus. God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And then finally in verse 14, it's the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guarding the good deposit entrusted to us. This is a work of God. The success of God's church depends not on you, not on me, not on Timothy, not even on Paul, but on our triune God, the plans and purpose of the Father, the work and grace of the Son, the power and leading of the Spirit. So that pressure that you feel to be a good Christian, for us to be a, a great church, it's not up to you. It's not dependent upon you or me. I've never saved anyone. I'd be curious to know if any of you have brought anybody from life to death. If you have, we need to talk later, or if you think that you have. But Paul says here in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 13, to continue to follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. What is this pattern? The pattern is that God plans it, the Son does it, and the Holy Spirit empowers us. And so this pattern for salvation 
in Jesus is the same pattern, pattern that we have for following Jesus. For you've been saved by grace, which he gave in Christ Jesus. Now continue to be strengthened in that same grace. Friends, we don't move on from the message of the gospel. But what, is that, what does that mean? Well, grace can be defined, and you, you may have heard this before, that grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. It's getting what we don't deserve. We didn't earn God's favor. Just a couple of weeks ago in our one service, Pastor Moody outlined this by helpfully saying that uh, Christianity can be spelled D-O, or not D-O, what you do, but what Christ has D-O-N-E, what he has done. The Bible tells us all that we've done, all that we have earned, all that we have merited is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, what Christ has done and gives us is life, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so God's grace to us is his mercy, is his salvation, is, his, is being justified through Jesus. Jesus gets all of our sin, we get all of his righteousness, and therefore we have and we experience God's favor. We are no longer enemies, but friends. We are no longer spiritual orphans, but he is our father. And I think we can understand that when it comes to salvation. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're wrestling with your faith, you're kind of peeking over the fence at what Christianity is all about, let's full pause right there. That's the message of the gospel. Do you believe that? If you haven't, let me call you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Be brought from life to death. His grace is enough for you, and he will save you. Yes, even this morning. If you are a Christian, if you are following Christ, perhaps you do understand that, but what does that continually mean for me as a disciple, as a follower, as someone who's already born again, who has new life in Christ? What does it mean when Paul says to Timothy, wait, there's a lot to do. Be strengthened by grace, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, it's one, in one sense, it's hard to understand, I think, because grace isn't really tangible. It's not something that we can touch. It's not something that we can physically put in ourselves, kind of like when you go to the doctor and you find out that you're not quite as healthy or you need to be stronger. What does he tell you to do? You eat a little bit better, change your diet, consume differently, but then also maybe exercise, perform differently. You exercise, you build your body in that way. You build your brain, perhaps, by studying and reading, and I'm sure there's all kinds of mental exercises that we can do to sharpen our minds, right? But what about our souls? How does grace function in that way? Well, think of grace as a source of strength, maybe like this. Grace is like God's protein for your soul. Here's what I mean. Protein you get from food. It's made up of amino acids. Now, I'm no nutritionist, no biology guy, whatever you call those people, doctor, I don't know. But here's what I do know is that when you, when you exercise, when you lift weights, when you run, when you walk, you break down your muscles. Uh, that's why you get sore. You create these tiny little micro tears in your muscle, right? That's, that's why we hurt. That's why we don't really like to do those sorts of things. But then you eat foods, you consume products that are full of rich protein. And what protein does is you have these little tears in your muscle that can only be seen in a microscope, unless you tear your hands, hamstring. That's, that's not what we're talking about. But you get these little micro tears in your muscle and protein comes and fills in those tears and heals and strengthens all around that muscle to make it bigger, to make it stronger. 
And grace is like that. As you're living your life and exercising your spiritual muscle, God gives you grace to come in and, and fill in and surround those tears to make you stronger, to make the church stronger. And as we consume grace by continually consuming the gospel, we are built up for the work. We are strengthened for the work that he's got for us to do. Paul interestingly said at the, at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, the church in Rome, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Now, why would he say that to a church that's full of people who are already Christians? Well, I mean, even the church in Rome was kind of the standard for churches in that day. Paul even said of them that, that their faith had been proclaimed to all the world. What did the church in Rome need to know more about the gospel? They probably had an unbelievable elder team and pastoral staff. They probably had a thriving missions ministry with a kids ministry that people would just flock to. Outreach was booming there. What did they need to know about the gospel? He says they need to hear it again. Why? Well, in chapter 16, in verse 25 of Romans, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long, long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Not just to bring about faith, but that is certainly included in the gospel, but even to strengthen you to bring about the obedience of the faith and continue to obey. Paul needed to preach the gospel again, the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to this thriving church in order that they might continue to be strengthened. How are you strengthened? By God's protein, grace, you don't move on from the gospel. Jesus' work that saved you is Jesus' work that keeps you is Jesus' work that strengthens you. Friends, I wonder if you're plugged in this morning to the wrong fuel source. Have you moved on from the gospel? That's something you've left in the, in the rearview mirror in some way. <clears throat> I wonder if you've, you're feeling beaten down and broken this morning, even in your spirit, in your soul. You're just weary could it be because you have a, an unhealthy spiritual diet? You've been malnourished and therefore you're just lacking the strength that is available to you in Christ Jesus? Paul, Paul's not hiding this. It's here for you. You've been snacking on spiritual junk food, imitation false truth, rather than feasting on God's word and, and praying for and relying on God's power. We need to remember and even indulge ourselves into the basic truths of the gospel over and over again. God is faithful and will strengthen you. The good news and grace that saved you is the good news of grace that strengthens you and fuels you. And Paul gives this great exhortation for Timothy to be strengthened by grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is the essential fuel source for faithfulness in ministry and for you and I to follow Jesus. Now, there's an interesting fact about protein, and we're about to conclude my whole knowledge of protein. But there's an interesting fact that when you don't use the protein that you put in your body, do you know how your body stores that protein? Fat. Uh-oh. Protein is meant to be used 
It's meant to be a fuel source for us to have energy to go out and use what God has given us in our bodies. In the same way, God doesn't give us fuel, grace for following him for us to then not follow him. <laughs> for, for us to come and just sit and soak and gorge ourselves on grace and then not do anything with it. If you sit and soak for too long, you know what they say, you start to reek and rot. <laughs> That's not God's plan. That's not how we use the essential fuel for the mission. God gives us this means of grace, our essential fuel, so that we can follow him and then fulfill our essential task. So let's look at what that is. The essential task is to pass on the gospel, be fueled by the gospel, and now pass it on. We're going to see that in verse 2. As Timothy is strengthened by grace that is in Christ Jesus, Paul says, Take what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Paul is telling Timothy to take the gospel, all the instructions that I've given to you, train up others in the church, and trust this message to them so that they can pass it on then to someone else. Folks, this is really simple. It's not simplistic, but it's not nearly as complicated as we make it out to be. It's the simple pattern that we see even already in this, uh, in Second Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul talks about that Jesus has entrusted this message to him. In verse 14, Paul now has entrusted this message to Timothy, and now he is to entrust it to faithful men. Now let me say a quick word here about uh, the gender distinction that, that Paul is making in his instruction. <clears throat> I believe that he's referring back to the men, the faithful overseers and shepherds that he talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as the elders of the church. Those men are set apart within the local church in Ephesus as overseers and shepherds. You can think of, of even Titus, one of Paul's other pastoral epistles, to another one of his protégés, Titus, in chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul refers to those men who, who are the guys who, who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught what's been entrusted to them so that they may be able then to give instruction and sound doctrine to others. This is the same pattern that we see here in 2 Timothy. And then what do they do? Those faithful overseers and shepherds then pass on to others, everyone else. And so note, in this one verse, you see four generations of disciple making. It's quite remarkable. Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to his elders, elders to the church. Four generations of disciple making in one sentence. And so what do we have? We have for us a pattern for disciple making. It's not anything new. It's not a revolutionary program. It's not the latest innovation of small groups or evangelism strategies. Paul is exhorting Timothy to fulfill his holy calling, his essential task, fueled by grace, to pass on the message of the gospel, to be a disciple-making disciple. So what about us? Is this a task reserved only for those in the role of elder or overseer? Well, it's, it's certainly not less than that. But it's hardly exclusive. This verse doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, even within the context of this letter, there are examples of disciple making outside of the role of overseer. Even in, family, in Timothy's own family tree. You look back in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1 where Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois. 
and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. Three generations in Timothy's family. I'm reminded of the Pearson's testimony just a moment ago where he talked, uh, Ben talked about his own family tree and how now he is making disciples. And you're starting to hear that even in Bible translation. It's like, hey, who can I take this message to? The family tree, the spiritual family tree is growing. For some of you, what might come to mind is, is Titus chapter two, where Paul instructs older men and older women to pass on what is good to younger men and younger women so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Friends, as a church, whether it's your first time here today or you've been coming here for decades, we can launch new initiatives which are great, we need those. We can build new buildings, we can start new programs, but all of those support the ministry of an essential task of making disciples, passing on the gospel message that has been entrusted to us. If we are not accomplishing the essential task of the church, we're not correctly using the fuel that God has given us. So why don't we practice disciple making like this? Well, a lot of us do, but there are a few reasons that might hold us back sometimes, right? Let me just give you a couple. First, I think in some ways we've become too dependent on the professionalization of Christian teaching. Uh, many of you have received first-rate degrees from Christian colleges or, uh, or, or high schools or elementary schools. We send our kids there, or maybe you serve there or even teach there. And those are good institutions that God has used and will continue to use to get the message of the gospel forward, particularly in the realm of education. But the essential task of disciple-making happens best and most powerfully within the context of the local church. This is God's plan. Does that mean that discipleship doesn't happen in those other locations? Of course not. But what it does mean for us, for most of us who are not professional teachers, you're not disqualified from being a disciple maker. In fact, you are called even still to be a disciple maker. God has fueled you for this gospel task. In the Great Commission, Jesus told us to go and make disciples. And he didn't follow that up then with a list of qualifications that included framed pieces of paper on our wall, making us disciple makers. And I say that as someone who has a framed piece of paper on his wall, right? At the end of the day, I'm I'm just a guy named Josh who has been saved by grace, who is called to tell other people about Jesus and help them be more like Jesus. And so are you, except your name's probably not Josh. Now, a second reason we don't perhaps practice disciple-making in this way is because we might have a misconception of what it means to pass on or teach. We think of teaching, of doing something like what I'm doing now, perhaps maybe in a a smaller scale, behind a a podium or a, a lectern or a pulpit. But the type of teaching that Paul is mostly talking about here is more intimate, it's more personal. It's more like what we think of as as mentoring. It requires time. It it requires intentionality and vulnerability and trust. And those things are scarce but valuable commodities in our culture. We're busy filling up our time and being intentional, but likely about other things. We're, We're scared of vulnerability. Trust is difficult, right? Personal discipleship then takes a backseat to other non-essentials. Even in our church, even though those non-essentials might be good things, they're not the first things. So think about your own life. If you're a Christian, 
Where and when and how have you grown the most in your faith? Perhaps it was in a classroom. Hopefully it does include the preaching ministry of a church. Hopefully this church, we seek to be faithful every week up here to bring God's word in a way that will help and build the church. But I bet some or most of the life lessons that you have learned that have shaped you most into the likeness of Christ didn't come in those settings. They came from someone else taking the time to pass on to you what they had been entrusted with. Sitting down to pray regularly with you or show you how to read the Bible. Pastor Moody asked this question a couple weeks ago. Who is discipling you now and who are you discipling? I might ask it in this context a little bit differently. Who are you burning your fuel for? Who are you burning your fuel for? At the beginning of this passage, Paul calls Timothy his child. With that image in our mind and this form of disciple-making before us, what does your spiritual family tree look like? What does your spiritual family tree look like? Say, I don't have one. It's not too late to plant one. It's not too late to get started. Maybe that starts with asking that friend to simply read the Bible once a week with you. Or to start reading the Bible with your kids or your spouse because discipleship looks different in all kinds of different stages of life. Or asking that coworker to pray together with you at lunch. Or maybe it's asking that unbelieving neighbor to have a spiritual conversation about Jesus. But because before you can make a disciple, you have to tell them about Jesus and God has to make a convert. Friends, we can be busy about a lot of things as individuals and as a church, but it doesn't get more essential than this, being and making disciples, burning up our fuel by passing on the gospel. That is our essential task. And so we have this fuel to be used, to be strengthened by the gospel for the essential task, which is to pass on the gospel. And lastly, we have our essential, essential goal to endure for the gospel Let's look together in verses three through seven. What Paul has in mind here for us and for Timothy is to be prepared to suffer hardship on account of the gospel. Paul's already said this in verse eight of chapter one. You can look back there. I've said it, quoted it a couple times already. But Paul fulfills and fills out this instruction with this illustration, these three different characters. So let's look and see what he says. So you've got a soldier, you've got an athlete and a farmer. And they all walk into an establishment of some kind and maybe a coffee shop, right? And they start up a conversation. They start talking about what they do and what makes them tick. The soldier starts out by saying, you know, when I'm on active duty to be a good and faithful soldier, I I can't concern myself with civilian affairs. I have to be single-minded in my devotion to serve my country. And my aim has to be to obey and follow the commands of my commanding enlisting officer. My goal is to follow his instruction. And in order to do that, guys, I I must eliminate all distraction. That's the picture of the devoted soldier. Paul is calling Timothy and us to be like that, to be single-minded in our devotion to Jesus. That devotion is is what enables us to endure and to share in suffering. Now, Paul is not calling us to be the type of Christian who isolates ourselves from the world 
from the rest of the world for this pursuit. Rather, knowing that your mission is as a Christian to always be on active duty, as a Christ follower, to be a witness in the world, you must always single-mindedly focus and aim to please the one who enlisted you, Jesus. This isn't a call to withdraw from everyday life. Instead, it's to redeem everyday life in order that you might endure for the gospel. Are you aiming to honor, to please the one who enlisted you? You know, we go off the rails when our target is something or someone other than Jesus. Most of the time when that happens, we need only look in the mirror to see who we're trying to please most. But what civilian pursuits, as it were, are entangling you, drawing your attention, your affections away from Jesus? Who are you tempted to please? Tim Keller said it like this, what the heart wants most, the, the mind finds reasonable, the will finds doable, and the emotions find desirable. Friends, this is why we must devote our attention and our affections to Jesus, even as we live uh, amongst those who are not following Christ. We want to call them to follow him as we single-mindedly pursue our Savior. Well, second, the athlete speaks up, and he says, for me, endurance is all about training in order to compete. And when I compete, I aim for the crown. But to gain the crown, to get the medal, I need to compete within the boundaries of my sport. It takes discipline, and there are no shortcuts to success. So we have the disciplined athlete. Paul says, the athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And this brings our goal into view. You want to be faithful to the end? You want to finish the race? You must train and compete just as an athlete does according to the rules. You must stay the course marked out for you. There are no shortcuts. You stay the course that is marked out for you by the one who has already brought you onto his team. And to avoid any confusion about that, Paul has already said, you don't earn your place on the team. You don't do so by your own ability or your own work. He said he has called you to a holy calling, not because of your works, not because you passed all the obstacles at the tryout, not because you're so worthy to be the number one draft pick, but because of his own purpose and grace, he has given you a, a, holy, call, a holy calling, which he has given you in Christ Jesus before the world began. So now that you are on the team, it's time to get in the game, to compete, to train, to use up that fuel to aim for the crown. Back on uh, May 4th, a group of elite ultra-distance running athletes set out to break the world record for the 100-kilometer uh, road race. Now, to put that in view, that's 62.1 miles. That's running the Run for the Stars 20 times in a row without stopping. Now, the overall winner missed the world, the, who finished that race missed the world record by 10 minutes which in a race that long is actually pretty close. But the story here was American runner named Jim Walmsley. He, his goal from the start was to set a world record, but maybe the 100K. His goal primarily, though, was the 50-mile distance. And he did it. Within the 62.1, he completed 50 miles faster than anyone ever. He ran for four hours, 50 minutes, and seven seconds, over 50 miles at a five minute and 48 pace. I can't run one mile that fast. 
He ended up breaking that world record by 14 seconds. But here's the catch. The race was sanctioned under the USA Track and Field Association. Within the context of the 100K race, the rules say for the 50-mile record to stand, he had to complete the 100K distance. So the world record was his, but he had 12 more miles to go for it to count. He had to complete, compete according to the rules to get the crown. There were no shortcuts. He didn't get to some milestone and just call it quits. Hey, I've achieved all that I can achieve. I've got that world record. I'm done. You guys can finish the rest. And so it is with the Christian life. There are no shortcuts. There are no cheat codes. We don't get to opt out of things like suffering or disciple making just because we think that Jesus is is done with us or we're following him and that's enough. In fact, by following Jesus, we are actually opting into following him and enduring according to what he's called us to do. And to be sure, if you are a Christian, you are a disciple and you are called to make disciples. To train ourselves for godliness, endurance according to his plan, that we might be crowned when we stand before him one day when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Are you seeking opt-outs? Are you looking for shortcuts? Endure for the gospel. Finally, the farmer speaks up. And he's a determined farmer. He's a hardworking farmer. Just as, but just as it is with the athlete and the farmers uh, and, and the soldiers, the farmer can't take any shortcuts. He's got to endure. He must toil every day. But one of the big differences between the farmer and the other two guys is that unlike those guys, his work is not rewarded in the same way. The soldier doesn't get the medal of, I mean, the, the farmer doesn't get the medal of honor. The farmer doesn't get the world record that the athlete gets, the crown. The farmer's work is not glamorous. In fact, it's, it's rather ordinary. It's laborious. In some ways, it's endless because the farmer doesn't clock in and clock out. He gets up early, plows the field, tends the crops, keeps the pests away, and gets up the next day and does it all again. But the farmer is rewarded by his determination. He gets up and he gets the first share of the harvest. Now, disciple making is a lot like farming in this way. It takes shape in different ways, in different lives, in different seasons of our life, as I mentioned before. But disciple making is the ordinary and enduring work of the Christ follower. Sometimes that means suffering and a willingness to share in that suffering. It's rarely glamorous. It's often filled with labor and toil, and most of it goes unnoticed. But there is tremendous eternal blessing and reward involved in watching people first come to the gospel to realize their need for the Savior, to be drawn by him, to put their faith and trust in him, to have a life move from from death to life, transformed by grace, then seeing that life continually transformed by the gospel, to put off sin, to embrace Christ, fueled by grace, to grow in holiness for that person, then to become a disciple maker, discipling someone else. This is slow careful, hard work, tending of the garden type of intentional ministry, just like the work of the farmer that yields a plentiful crop in due time. Therefore, Galatians 6, 9 says, we must not grow tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time 
if we do not give up. Friends, we are called to the essential, ordinary work of disciple-making for the gospel. And it always yields an extraordinary, eternal harvest. Are you weary this morning of waiting on your crops to return their harvest? Perhaps you have been running your course that's been marked out for you. You are aiming to please your commanding officer. You do understand and have embraced the essential task of passing on the gospel. You're plugged into and are consuming your essential fuel, the gospel of grace. You're just waiting for the fruit to come that you might inherit. Friends, the call this morning is to endure. The Lord will give you what you need. Paul told Timothy and he tells us, keep plowing, don't give up. In verse seven, Paul says to think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. We don't always understand how God works the way that he moves in some lives and differently in others, drawing people to himself at different times, helping people overcome sin in different ways. But the Lord will give us understanding because Paul is again reiterating that all of this depends on the Lord, even executing the mission and focusing on the goal. So do you want to be a successful Christian? Do we want to be a successful church? Let's not focus on success. Let's seek to be faithful with the essentials, that God might be pleased, that you and I might be crowned, and that we can see the harvest yield its crop in due time. May the Lord give us understanding to continue to pursue these things by his grace. Let's pray as we conclude. Father, we're grateful for your word to us and your challenge this morning. But thankful even as you challenge us, you fuel us. You don't call us to something and then not equip us. You have given us everything we need in Jesus and in the gospel. And so, Lord, would you strengthen weak knees this morning? Would you sharpen the tools that perhaps have become dull? Would you strengthen us by the fuel of your grace and give us eyes to see those around us, perhaps under our own roof or across the street, who need Jesus and who need to follow him? Lord, would you help us in the task? Help us to endure for the great name and fame of Jesus, we pray. Amen.